so Ray, you have been paying a lot of attention to oppression as an embodied experience. I have. I feel like I've been paying attention to it sort of on an, on an implicit level um, all my life. More explicitly, as a clinician, when I started working with clients who didn't identify as trauma survivors, but who clearly had life experiences that, that put them on the margins of society. Um, and then I've been working in this territory quite explicitly for about the past 10 or 12 years um, as a researcher and as an educator. So mm-hmm. in a way, this, this feels like this is my career, this is my life work. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so um, is there a context uh, uh, about the resonance of this theme for you personally? Absolutely. Um, I, th- I think that one of the easiest ways to, to sort of, for me to talk about that and to sort of get into that um, personal relationship with what I would describe as the somatic effects of oppression or the embodied experience of oppression um, actually lit up for me as an issue when I was working with clients and when I was simultaneously training in dance movement therapy, a form called psychodramatic body work, which was very um, body-centered and cathartic-based psychotherapy modality, um, and working with clients who really did live on the margins. And I started to draw these connections across all of these things that I was doing um, and I started realizing that a lot of what I was seeing in my clients echoed the um, sort of the physical and the somatic correlates of PTSD, even though they weren't they weren't describing themselves as having had a single incident acute trauma. Um, and I was working with them in a way that that actually allowed me to see for my own eyes and feel in my own body their movement constriction and the corresponding constriction in their affect Mm -hmm. and their capacity to access emotional states. Um, So I want to maybe just slow down a little bit and, um, and, 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 and voice it to tell you what I'm hearing. Yes. And um, because it feels like there's a lot in it. So one yes. is that, uh, in a way, uh, cumulative oppression yes. uh, has, even though each moment is not comparable to, say, a major trauma, uh, yes. the cumulative effect is similar to that of trauma. Yes. And um, looking at it with that vantage point, that perspective of paying attention to movement, uh, you're noticing that there is a constriction, you yes. know, in, you know, so that sense of restraint, tightening of the body movement, of the ability to move. And yes. that, uh, uh, is, uh, related one way or another with also the constriction in terms of, uh, emotional or behavioral, um, 
what you, what people do at that stage. Yeah, I mean, I, exactly right. I, I think that, that one of my fundamental assumptions about emotion and movement is, is one that's shared by many somatic psychotherapists, which is that, that emotion can be understood as a sensation in the body that has a life of its own and that is naturally expressed in movement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That it's a particular type of somatic sensation mm-hmm. rather than a cognitive construct. Right, right. <laughs> so, so in a way, emotion is part of the continuum of movement and is the experience, emotional, psychological experience of something that in that continuum is part of movement. Yes. Yes, and that, that movement is its its natural expression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, to, to come back to your first question, which is, what's my personal relationship with this? I was working with clients. I was seeing all of these um, bodily-based effects of trauma. And not only was I recognizing that based on my observations, that I was coming to the conclusion that oppression was traumatic, that it would be analogous to what we're now understanding as complex developmental trauma, only on a social level, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but that I recognized these behaviors in myself. And I went, wow. (laughs) Like, I also get on a bus and tighten my body up so that I am taking up the least possible amount of space rather than being comfortable in my own skin. Why is that? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. automatic and not, even what I wanted to change it, the, dis- the, the somatic discomfort of trying to take up space that no one else wanted was so impossible for me. I thought, whoa, what, what's going on here? Okay. And so, and so, and again, interrupting you, yep. but the, the, that's as you say that. There's a striking image that the word oppression is not just an abstract concept, but no, it is not. that experience of even though at that specific moment there is not no actual pressure for you to take last space, but there is that uh, conditioning to yes. squeeze yourself in such a way that you take less space. And yes. so, very, very physical uh, experience of yes. oppression. Yes. So, so those observations led me to really look at how do we learn about social structures and social norms. And it led me into a, a territory of writing on embodiment theory that was remarkable to me. Um, both embodiment theories... Merleau-Ponty, people like Gail Weiss um, and Elizabeth Gross and Judith Butler, but also um, a whole tradition of people researching nonverbal communication. Specifically and originally, um, Nancy Henley and her colleagues um, looking at nonverbal communication and sexism in the late 70s, early 80s. And I realized that one of the 
missing pieces for me in doing diversity work or anti-oppression work was that most of our efforts as activists, as people who wanted to advocate for social change and wanted to participate in those changes, that a lot of those initiatives and efforts were directed to a social level that focused on sort of what I might describe as a macro level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Laws, social institutions, make changes, you know, the right to marry. And please don't, please don't get the impression that I'm against those kinds of efforts. I'm not. I'm very much in favor of them. But that there was this micro level mm-hmm. that was nonverbal that was completely obscured and rendered invisible by our ability to be politically correct in mm-hmm. terms of what we say to one another across our social differences. But it was being that those social differences, that marginalization, that oppression, was being replicated on a day-to-day basis through our nonverbal communication. So when you're talking about this way, the image that comes to mind is almost like talking about the DNA of oppression is yeah. how it goes into, you know, at a cellular level, at a moment-by-moment experience. And, yes. uh, of course, you're not in any possible way saying not to pay attention to the macro. But no. um, that, in addition, we're missing something important if we're not right. seeing how it gets into you know, the the DNA of life or the moment-by-moment experience of life or the cellular experience of life. If if we're not talking about our everyday embodied interactions with one another and how those reproduce power dynamics based on social structures, if we're not talking about that in our diversity work, we're missing the boat. Mm-hmm. And that's, I realize that's a really strong statement. That's how, that's how strongly I feel about it. I think that in the, in a way that's similar to how body psychotherapists recognize what a huge and important data set the body offers in terms of psychological and emotional and relational distress. I feel similarly about the body in terms of how crucial a data set it offers right. for understanding our social systems. Right. And so, in a way, for me, I would like to, to suggest an image, in a way, mm. that, you know, the, there's, again, a lot of power in looking at the big trends on the macro level. And, yes. on the other hand, that, in a way, uh, if we don't pay attention to the micro level, uh, we don't have the grip where, yep. you know, we're not touching something mm-hmm. where yep. the change can happen. Not yes. to mean no change can happen from the macro level, but there is course, another level of change, that level of experience, which is not touched. And yeah. uh, by paying attention to it, then we have the grip or the leverage to possibly make changes. Yes, yes, a- absolutely right. I'm, I'm reminded of an article that I read in preparing my review of the literature on this topic. Um, and I was struck by the title of it so viscerally that I've, I've remembered it to this day. The title was, and it was, it was referring to, um, a form of critical pedagogy, which is, of course, is teaching to change, teaching for social change. The title of the article was, Why Doesn't This Feel Empowering? Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, right. 
here we are, we've got these models, we've got these strategies, we've got these initiatives. Why doesn't this feel empowering? And for me, the answer is, it doesn't feel empowering because the the home of our feeling is our bodies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if we're not doing anything different on that body level, it doesn't feel different mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, or different enough. Mm-hmm even though the macro level institution and legislative change is crucial. Mm-hmm. Even though it is. There's something about being able to take a breath, being able to make sustained eye contact with someone that you experience as more powerful than you are mm-hmm. in a threatening situation, if those are also if that behavior is also in alignment with your cultural norms. Yes, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I realize that the example is not a, a universal one. Right, but so, but so, really, literally about uh, changing the experience. Yes, you know, so that um, uh, we're not just in a way changing the externals, but yes. making sure that actually this translates into changing the experience. Yes, and that 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 change of experience happens not just subjectively, but relationally. Mm-hmm. That when I occupy my body, when I'm in and embodying myself differently, that shows up in an observable way to others. Mm-hmm. And their embodied experience changes as a result. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and just to come, to come back to that, that example of being on the bus and being unable to take up space even though it was there to be taken. Um, I don't want to suggest by any stretch that there aren't real social forces preventing people from subjugated social groups, real forces preventing them from behaving ways and real consequences, real slapbacks for stepping out of line. I know that's true. I'm, I'm, not, um, I'm not in any way suggesting that that's not the case. And I think there's a fair bit of agreement in, in communities who are working for social change that a lot of the challenge is undoing those inhibitions and injunctions in, our, in ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's addressing the internalized forms of right. those social restrictions and constrictions. But so, in a way, what comes to mind is if to, to take the example of the bus ride, and if we take Selma, um, yeah. you know, if Rosa Parks occupies the space, uh, it doesn't change the social structure. But the social structure, you know, the action can only be taken because she actually made the move to fight the internal oppression. Yes. That tells her she has no right to do it. Yes. So, yes. Um, you know, it's not that one or the other, but just that unless she has a sense of having the right to that space, uh, yes. you know, the, the rest cannot happen. Right. That she was, that she was able not just to make herself do that mm-hmm. and sit in that seat and not get up. Um, that she was able to resist all of those internalized pressures to obey 
mm-hmm. um, and instead was able to resist, I would suggest took a lot of internal somatic work on her part yeah. Yeah. to be able to tolerate that, mm-hmm. to be able to actually make that choice. So, yeah, and, and I think that there's a, there's a, a tricky place where it can feel like doing the work to address the somatic imprint of oppression in our own bodies can f- sometimes feel like the people who've experienced oppression are responsible for changing that themselves. Mm. And I don't want to suggest that. No. And I, I do think that there is a place um, where that feels necessary and important and useful. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I like the phrase you use. You say the internalized experience of oppression. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, it's about, so, you know, then, it, you know, when we put it this way, it's very clear. It's not about saying that it's your fault. Uh, this is the result of it. And uh, in a way... Um, you know, it's not just you have to do it, you have to, to uh, you know, pull up your bootstraps, but also right. that there is a sense of compassion and help uh, from others, uh, yes. including about making it visible, because that uh, that experience is not, as you described, you know, is not something that you're necessarily aware of until, right. you know, you start to pay attention to it. Right, and so there's the other, there's the other, brilliant strategy um, in in a society that actually profits from subjugating some of its members mm-hmm. um, is that by simultaneously cutting people off from their from the lived experience of their own bodies we we create a situation where the people who are experiencing oppression are also simultaneously divorced from the source of knowing that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because they're also socialized to not feel their bodies, talk about their bodies, um, use their bodies in any particular way for their own expression, their own pleasure, mm-hmm. their own empowerment, um, but also... There's, there's a way in which that experience of being oppressed can set up um, a somatic dissociation that's also about a trauma response. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's two things. There's, in, there's a general um, pressure, in a way, of society to not feel, not be in touch with the experience of the body in general. Yes, yes. But there is also um, what we know about trauma is that in trauma, the people have a normal tendency to dissociate. And yes. so the two of them conspire to make it harder to be aware of that experience of oppression. Yes, and and it makes it harder to access those resources of felt experience in the body. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So um, it's it's a perfect setup. Yeah. yeah. It's a perfect setup for perpetuating inequitable social norms. 
And so, in, in insisting on this, this is exactly the opposite of blaming the victim, because we're actually validating how difficult it is for somebody who is the victim of this situation to actually be aware of it. Yes. Absolutely. So that's, that's been the focus of my research, mm-hmm. uh, is to help bring more awareness of what some of those embodied experiences are. Mm-hmm. What does it, what does it feel like? What, what kinds of situations um, do people who've experienced oppression pay attention to in terms of their somatic response? What does that look like across a range of social identities? What does that look like across a range of social situations? Um, and at least initially, the findings um, that I've that I've uncovered through working with um, people who have identified as oppressed, um, and and also working with Christine Caldwell, my colleague in this in this research now, is that there are um, a couple of things that very much align with what we would understand as traumatic responses, specifically the constriction and the... So um, I'm talking about categories of PTSD. There's a sort of a, a constriction category within that diagnosis. And then there's an arousal category. And not only does this map on... Um, really strongly to what my, my research participants have been saying, it also maps onto what the literature in nonverbal communication research has been saying, which mm. is that people from subordinated social groups pay way more attention and are much better at reading the body language of others than people in privileged positions. They're really paying attention. They are hypervigilant in that way that we would talk about in, in the in sort of in the in the world of trauma. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because their so survival depends on it. Because their survival depends on it. Absolutely. They need to be able to read a threat. And so they're very exquisitely attuned. Not always on a conscious level. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. still. When I asked, so how did you know that how, something made you uncomfortable? What was it about what they were doing that made you uncomfortable. And we unpack it together. And they go, oh, it's because they were behind me. Oh, it's because they looked at me this way. Oh, it was because, you mm-hmm. know, my back was to the door. Whatever it is, really exquisitely attuned mm-hmm. to the nuances of touch, eye contact, use of interpersonal space, gesture, all of that. Mm-hmm. Reading all of those Nonverbal indicators of dominance and submission and aggression, very, very literate about reading those indicators, um, and also simultaneously um, feeling quite unable, quite inhibited in terms of being able to challenge those norms through their own bodily expression. Right, and so that's the paradigm uh, there, is very, very attuned to the bodily experience of others, but cut off from their own bodily experience, and therefore not having the leverage uh, to actually make a change, but in a way being reactive 
to the outside threat as opposed to connecting to whatever might be a resource or a power to change the situation. Yes, yes. Um, and I think, I think that experience um, can be understood in a, in a couple of ways. One is that it's a, it's a function of the somatic dissociation trauma response, mm-hmm. but also not knowing what's going on, even though you're really reading it, is also a function of our um, social norm to not pay attention to the level of nonverbal communication. We don't talk about it. We don't notice it. We don't articulate it. Even though we're really exquisitely good, most of us, at reading and speaking body language, we don't live in a culture, by and large, that allows us to address that explicitly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We just respond to it on this implicit level. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so it's a, it's a response, but it's actually almost a reactive response because it doesn't have the possibility to include, you know, a broader, uh, it's, it's a manipulated from the outside. It's more, it's, yeah. So, but I want to just maybe use this as a transition to, in addition to the, to the research, you then went on to uh, communicate some of this into a performance mode. So do you want yes. to talk a little bit about how that came about and what the vision has been, you know, sure. of that led to the concept of creating a performance around that? Right. Okay. Sure. Um, although I consider myself an academic and although I love research, I consider myself a, a somatic person first and foremost. So there was something really antithetical about engaging in a piece of research about the body, about the body's role in this really important social construct, but but presenting the results of that research in a disembodied way. It just felt wrong. Mm -hmm. It felt Mm -hmm. um, like I was, in some ways, failing to honor the knowledge of the body that was being communicated to me by distilling it and presenting it on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And I also, I also questioned the ability of the written word to effectively elicit in readers some of what that experience was like for my participants. I actually believed, because of my experiences in therapy and being a therapist, in doing experiential work, in doing psychodrama, in seeing the impact, feeling the impact of witnessing someone's embodied experience Mm -hmm. in a group context. I was really struck by that, and I, I wasn't convinced that writing an article for a journal was actually going to be the most effective way for me to communicate my findings. Um, so Christine and I, Christine Caldwell and I, have been working on this for a while, and she had been working with a participant and wound up doing a, a performance piece at a particular venue. Um, and then the following year, um, I decided that I was going to use that same venue to take advantage of the the willing participation 
of a number of students, graduate students, in body psychotherapy. Um, and in a, in a very lovely, collaborative, interactive way, we developed a performance piece that used the verbatim transcripts of my research interviews and enacted them on stage. And I learned so much from that, from that experience. I learned that, that there's something about the act of performance that's also transformative. And that, that the performers talked about being transformed by what they were saying. So maybe before going there, which is a big mm-hmm. point, yeah. um, can we uh, maybe give a concrete idea, sure. uh, you know, maybe a moment or two in the piece to describe yes. in such a way that they come to life uh, and give some kind of an idea of what the piece is about or what it, what it feels like or looks like? It's, you know, it's hard to do in words, Serge, but I'll do my, I'll do my best. Because <laughs> um, immediately I want to draw you pictures, right? Right, right. <laughs> um, let me describe the setup mm-hmm. of the second performance that we did, which was at a, a dance therapy conference. And the conference itself was set up in a room with a very large circle of chairs, in which the conference participants were seated. And the way that we constructed this particular performance was to embed the performers in seats all the way Mm. around the circle in various random locations. So they were sitting down, waiting for the conference to start. None of the conference participants knew that they were performers. They just understood them as fellow conference participants. I introduced the piece, and I don't explain much except that um, we're, I'm going to, we're going to be doing a performance that, that addresses um, the embodied experience of oppression. Mm-hmm. And then, out of the blue, one person stands up and begins to speak. <laughs> and, you know, of course, everyone looks and goes like, what's going on? Is this, what, what's, what's happening here? And I just want to, I want to pause a little bit and, and share my rationale for this. Mm-hmm. Because everything that we did was, was strategic, of course. I wanted in some way to offer an opportunity for the participants in that conference to encounter someone speaking about their experience of oppression in a context where they weren't expecting it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's often where we find ourselves floundering. That when we go to, uh, you know, a multicultural competence in psychotherapy workshop, or we go to a, a setting where we know that diversity and equity is going to be the topic, we're kind of prepared. We're ready for these stories. We're ready for these examples. But I think when they happen in real life, mm. on a day-to-day basis, out of the blue, we're not as prepared. We are more likely, I believe, to revert to our old patterns of responding and relating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So I wanted as much as possible to, to offer this. What happens when people just out of the blue are talking about this experience? And yeah. when participants are caught off guard a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so not totally caught off guard because you announce that it's there. But yeah. there is definitely the caught off guard in the sense of this is not what you expect as a performance. And yeah. there is no knowing who is a performer or not or why is this person talking. So there's definitely a very disorienting aspect to it. Yes. And it was strategically, intentionally disorienting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, And it was one of the things that I learned about using performance to communicate research findings. Because that's not, although I've got a background in psychodrama, that's not my strength. I'm not a theater person. I'm not a performance studies person. Um, but I learned as I went how to use these techniques mm-hmm. of performance to elicit particular responses in the audience and also in the performers. Mm-hmm. So... But so, in a way, when you say the caught off guard and the disorienting, um, yeah. you know, literally what we're talking about is um, it creates, you know, being caught off guard is another word for less safe. So, uh, in other words, what's happening is the audience is in the emotional state of not feeling safe, um, which is corresponding to mm-hmm. the emotional experience of being oppressed. Yes, yes. So that, exactly right. There are lots of layers to this. And, and I, I absolutely wanted to create, although of course, who knows, I, you can't always predict, but my, it was my intention to, to create just a slight elevation in the arousal of the autonomic mm-hmm. nervous system of my conference participants. <laughs> Not outside their window of tolerance. Yes, yes. But just a little bit. Enough so that they were Paying attention and not entirely sure. I wanted mm-hmm. to wake them up mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. out of their old patterns of responding. And yes, you're right. Give them a little taste. Not that they don't know this in their own lives, because they do. But I wanted to give them a little taste, a little reminder of, ah, yes, this would, this is what it feels like to be disoriented, to feel unsure, to not know quite know what's going on, to not be on the inside mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um. <clears throat> So a lot of the performance was individual performers standing up in turn and saying a particular piece. A lot of it was interactive. One of the, one of the components of the performance that I got feedback later was, was quite effective for, for a lot of the audience was when two of my performers seated on opposite sides of the circle got up and began walking toward one another and as they became as they came closer it became clear that one of them was going to continue on their path on their trajectory and the other one needed to move outside mm. or they were going to they were going to collide and so one of them moved aside and the other one continued on in their straight path and they continued on across the circle and then sat down in the other person's mm. chair. Then something else happened. Someone else stood up and said a piece about body image or body shame or walking in the park holding hands with their partner and feeling stared at. And then this 
the same pattern would repeat. These two performers would again get up without words and make their way across the stage, cross paths, and again the same performer would move aside to avoid colliding. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The third time this happens, the performer who moves aside says to the audience, why is it always me? Wow. And it was like, oh yeah. Based not only on the experience being conveyed by my research participants, but absolutely in alignment with the research done um, specifically around women who will concede space to men mm -hmm. and to other women, almost out of habit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That they're the ones who move aside. They're the ones who can't take up space. It's not negotiated. It's not who's carrying the most groceries. It's it's what sex you are. It's what you, you know. It really is as as um, as absolute as that, at least in terms of the the research literature. So I wanted to find a way of illustrating that, um, and I wanted it to not be clear what was happening. But you know, what's nice about this uh, moment that you describe is the sense of how the situation itself is visible to yes. the audience from the outside because yes. you see somebody moving and somebody leaving room, mm -hmm. setting, you know, moving aside in order to yes. leave room. Um, it is something that happens internally because that person has the internal experience, why does it have to be me? And yes. so uh, this is a nice moment where the external and the internal are both present. And yes. because the audience is in sync emotionally with that sense of disorientation, but also watching that situation with a sense of disorientation, there is probably more of a possibility to resonate with the inner emotion of why does it have to be me? Um, you know, yes. because there's, there's, it's not just something that you look abstractly, but there's something happening inside as yes. well. Yes. And I, I think I agree, and I think the other reason that it that it was effective was it was a common 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 experience. We've all done this. We've mm -hmm. all you know been walking down a hallway and had someone coming in at us the other way, and having to make that choice of do I move? Am I even paying attention to the other person? Mm -hmm. Do I even notice or? Or do I, am I carrying so much privilege in that environment that the only thing I need to be paying attention to is me mm -hmm. and where I'm going? Mm -hmm. And is it, you know, is it taken for granted because of my power that that's the only thing I need to pay attention to? Great. So, you know, as I'm listening to this, you know, I'm thinking about branching out a little differently than we had talked originally. We had thought about sure. all kinds of questions and topics. But in a way, it feels very right to leave it uh, mm -hmm. here um, with the idea that there is a sense that what the, the performance did um, is actually create an experience. You know, and there was a transmission of experience. You alluded to the fact that mm -hmm. uh, being part of the performance was something that helped transform the performers. 
Yes. And, um, and it's a very, you know, it's a powerful concept. But yes. also, as you describe it, that it raised questions that then, uh, in a way, is carried through in the audience. Yes. And, uh, and maybe, yeah. So, yeah. That, that's, that was exactly my intention in, in using performance to communicate research findings mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. was I was studying the embodied experience of people who'd identified as being oppressed. I wanted that experience to, to be understood on the same level that it was experienced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for me, the, the transmission and the transformation happened from the research participant to me originally mm-hmm. as the mm-hmm. research. As I'm listening to them, I'm having these experiences. There were many times during the, during the interviews um, where I was moved to tears, where we were both crying, where we were having this sort of shared kinesthetic experience related to what they were telling me. Mm-hmm. So their experience lands in my body. Then it lands in the bodies of the performers, even though, unlike me, the performers never met the research participants. All they had was the transcript mm-hmm. and a few lines of text. But they understood. I'll, I'll, I'll pause here and just say the, the performers chose what pieces of text they mm-hmm. performed. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they had the opportunity to choose the ones that they actually resonated with. Mm-hmm. But as they're learning their lines, as they're learning and, and playing with, experimenting how they're going to convey that on stage and how the, what kind of movements they're going to use and how are we going to stage this particular vignette, they're getting a sense of not just what does this remind them of in their own bodies, but what was it like for that person to be in their skin, to be in their bodies. They're getting it in a much different way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, yes, the audience, my intention was for everyone in the audience to have both a reminder of similar experiences in their past, in their lives, Mm -hmm. in their bodies, Mm -hmm. but also an opportunity to go, wow, I've never quite felt this. Mm -hmm. This is a new experience for me. Oh, or I'm feel, I've seen this situation. I understand this situation. It's happened before, but I'm feeling it. It's landing in my body in a different way. Yeah. 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 And then, of course, at the end, part of my facilitation is to offer an opportunity for people to talk about it, Mm -hmm. which I did. It wasn't just, there's the piece, now go home. Right. Of course. Of course. (laughs) Of course. Of course. So, um, in that particular example, um, participants, at the conference, um, talked about their experience in small groups of two and three, and then we came back into the large group. And I, I invited people to share what vignettes spoke to them, what, how that landed, and what that meant. And then what I would then do is pick up those pieces that were being shared across the, the large circle and relate to them to some of the other research. Beautiful. I would say, ah, yes, body image is a real theme. So it was a way for me to bring it back to what were the themes of the findings, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. just 
take it up only as individual experiences. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a context. And, and the yeah, context and is that, empowering. There's that, metal, yeah. there's that meta level yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's being introduced at the end, even though initially it's at that micro body-to-body level. Right, right. Yeah. That feels beautiful. It yeah. was It was an incredible amount of work. It was a whole lot of fun. Because working with the performers was a was a delight, um, and there was something about it that felt much more meaningful mm-hmm. than seeing an article I'd written in print. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Given that that our conversation today has been in the service of making an offering around what sustains me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just, I'll say a little bit about how this process of researching the embodied experience of oppression and conveying the findings through this performance, how it, it speaks to what sustains me, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is that as an academic, working in a territory that um, can be very difficult. It's kind of like being a therapist who works with trauma survivors, which I have also done in my life. Um, It's been important for me to pursue a strategy for doing this work that doesn't lead me to burnout, because all I do is you know, listen to stories of oppression mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. a research, um, that there be some capacity within what I'm doing for me to witness and experience the transformation of the pain that we're talking about that's inherent in the topic. Mm-hmm. And that's what performing the body stories of people who've experienced oppression did for me is that it allowed me par- to participate in a process of transformation so that there was a way in which those experiences weren't as painful. Um, and I'll, I'll, just, I'll just share one of the pieces of follow-up research I did was that I talked I want to, to a research before, before Before that, yeah. maybe I want to, to highlight what you just said before I forget the word. Sure. But I found very powerful when you made the distinction between witness and yes. participate in a process of transformation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the, the example that I'm going to provide is, is, is sort of speaks more to that. One of the things that I did after the second performance was I went back to the only person who had been an original participant in the research who also was at that performance as an audience member. Mm -hmm. So she had the unique experience of hearing and seeing her own words performed on stage. And being able to see and feel what that felt like in her, but also to witness how her words landed in the body of the performer and landed in the bodies of the rest of the participants. And what she said was that it felt like healing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
was that it it was transformative for her. There was something about feeling deeply witnessed in a very engaged way where she could see people responding to what to an experience that she had described originally to me several years ago. Mm-hmm. But for her being there again and being in that that um, community where people were not just listening to her, but engaging with her experience in their own bodies, she said was transformative for her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that feels beautiful. So, yeah, and, and, th- and that feels important to me. It feels important that this not just be a recording of experience, that it be a, a, grasp, a deep grasping and transforming of experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, research as social change. Yes, very much so. And expression. <laughs> and expression. And research yes. as part yes. of a... Research, yes. Research as part of the, the process of social change. Yes. Yes, yeah. very much so. Thanks, Ray. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. This is part of the Active Pause podcast at activepause.com.